Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about our outlook for investments, whether the crisis is fundamentally changing investor behaviour, and how our biases and views may be influencing how we interpret information. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation, and Robert Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. And as usual, there's plenty to cover. Our faithful listeners will notice that we won't have Will with us today. He's having a bit of a break, as are we, some might say. But there'll therefore be fewer references to the feudal system and and historical events. But there'll be lots of extra insight, um, as I'm joined by John Paul Yeagers, our head of asset allocation, and Rob Smith, our head of behavioural finance. We're going to try to cover our outlook for asset classes, um, consumer behaviour, the recovery, forecasting, inflation. Have I missed anything out, guys? No? Well, that's that's quite a long list for you to cover with me, so we better get on with it. So so let's start with a bit of an update on the course of the coronavirus and and responses that we've seen to it. Uh, Here in the UK, it feels like the government is easing lockdown restrictions um, quite quite sort of um, quite fast. Obviously, Leicester is is in lockdown um, and local and central governments are responding to, to some of the smaller outbreaks. But there hasn't been too many uh, large sort of negative headlines on, on the course of the virus. This certainly isn't uh, the case for, for some other countries, though. So, JP, what's the latest that you're seeing? Hello, Nikki. Yeah, that's, that's indeed correct. So we see in, in Europe in particular that a lot of easing is going on out of the lockdown measures. But if we, for instance, look to the Americas, we see that still the case counts uh, are continue to rise. We see in the US some states reinstating some of the lockdown measures. We see that Brazil, Peru are very hard hit with the number of infections. And also, if we look to Asia, if we see Japan and Hong Kong toughening lockdown measures. We do now see that governments are using more localized approach instead of a nationwide lockdown. So we see this can be as effective once you know exactly where it is, as testing capabilities have become better. Uh, and, And we also know that it's less harsh economically. Uh, recently, there was interestingly some some research out of out of King's College London, which was adding to some of the evidence that came out of Germany and China scientists there, which uh, where recovered patients, if we look to the antibody count, it reduces quite steeply after a couple of months. So that makes the concept of of herd immunity actually quite difficult if just the the antibodies remain f- for a very short time in 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 people. Um, that reminds us that actually the, the whole concept of immunity remains quite challenging. Good. The immunity is, 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 is a spectrum, so it's not binary. It's not you are immune or not immune, so you can be not in, have not enough antibodies to be immune. And we also see now that it can be temporary, so that remains a challenge. Although we do see some more promising headlines uh, on the clinical trials that are currently being conducted. So in terms of timelines, yeah, we see some encouraging news if, 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 yeah, if we're looking for a vaccine. So we're still hopeful on that, but um, so far we're not we're not completely out of the woods, of course. Um, but it does seem like there is some um, you know reason for hope, and we're moving moving somewhat in the right direction. But does this change our outlook at all for asset classes over the longer term? Uh, well, there are a lot of things that still can go right. So we just, we just spoke about vaccine or treatment development. Um, he, we see that governments become better in targeting the containment. We now have better testing capabilities. 
and we just over time get better informed. Uh, there is more research. There is no more research on, for instance, in, on children at school. But e equally, there is a lot of challenging that remain. So it, it's difficult if you start re relaxing some of the measures that the public potentially could become more overconfident. Uh, in some areas, you could see some rebelling against some of the measures. So for example, wearing face masks in, in certain areas. Uh, and also as a society, it's, it, 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 it has a large impact if this takes very long. Just think of the examples like loneliness, mental health, people with special needs. We human beings are social species. So in, 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 if, if we think about the long-term impacts for assets, uh, it, I don't think this really changes the dial a lot for us. Uh, it cannot depend on, on a single event. We know that more events will come and go that will shape the future. And, and we know that years, good years and bad years actually make up the average of the returns we would expect over a longer period of time. Uh, but of course, we have to think about what are some of the trends that this might shape. So, for example, the acceleration we see in digitalization um, or just working from home versus being in the office, those kind of arrangements that will that will shape uh, the near future as well. But it's very quite difficult at the moment really to say with a lot of confidence how long term those those changes may be and how that will actually impact the various assets. And so as we've talked about, more and more of the country and, and the economy is is starting to open up. You know, my, my youngest daughter is very keen to get her ears pierced. Um, I've run out of excuses because I believe they're opening up. Um, <laughs> I, I think JP and Rob, those matching tattoos you might be hankering after could be could be uh, available to you. Um, beauty of salons, etc., hairdressers opening up somewhat. Um, so, so whilst we, you know, may have personal views as to what we want to go out and and um, take advantage of now that things are opening up, we have seen. You know, we've seen scenes of quite busy high streets, the pubs brimming with with punters. You know that that all looks quite favourable from an economic perspective. So you could be forgiven for thinking that actually there's some kind of reversion to the norm. But Rob, can you tell us a little bit about, from a behavioural perspective, what what you see happening here, and and you know what what your hopes or concerns are? Sure, Heineke. So I think the first thing is if we look at the sort of the latest sort of survey data that we see that has been been uh, done in the UK recently, what what's noticeable is that you know, people are definitely a lot, a lot happier now than they were uh, back in in sort of March when lockdowns were obviously being imposed and a lot less scared, which is obviously a good thing. Uh, but people obviously uh, are seeming a lot seemingly a lot more frustrated and, and bored again, you know, understandably. But generally, the consensus is that that people think the situation is getting better, which is which is good because that's kind of what the a lot of the evidence seems to support. Most people support government relaxing lockdown measures and and some of the courses of action, but there's still like a very high level of concern over the economy and health. And the really interesting thing is actually these two issues are now moving in lockstep with each other. So at the start of the crisis, you saw health being a very big concern for people and the economy sort of less so. But you've seen health worries come down a bit, the economy worries about the economy come up, but they've been moving in, in lockstep for the last kind of month or so. Now, what's I guess interesting when you dig into the detail of some of these things is and I'm sure people may have seen there was I think a big headline on one of the BBC articles about how comfortable people were going out and eating at restaurants. Um, and so if we look at some of that data, we can see that so 21% of people say that they are uh, comfortable or very comfortable eating out 
um, at a, indoors in a restaurant. Now, it's slightly more eating outdoors, but obviously, you know, restaurants have limited capacity to, to, to cater for people outside. So 21%, it's, it's a decent amount, but it's still pretty small. And it's obvious that, you know, the risks still loom pretty large with people. And that's understandable because the effects of this crisis were very tangible uh, at the beginning with the death counts and, and it was all communicated very vividly. So, you know, there's a question about are people, are people possibly overweighting what could be smaller probabilities of, you know, the negative outcomes. I think what's interesting is, you know, we're slowly seeing increases in people doing, carrying out non-essential activities, going to shops and things like that. But their numbers are, are coming up from a, from a pretty low base. I think two things, I guess, to highlight is the trust in government and the media has been falling a bit recently. They were actually spiked. It went up at the beginning of the crisis. But it's been falling recently. And that's kind of interesting because, as anyone probably would have thought, you know, trust in the information that you're getting is obviously very important because if you don't feel you can trust the information that's being supplied to you, you're not likely to go and, you know, take any action off the back of that. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops over time and whether that, you know, changes and, and encourages people out. But there is still quite a split on how people see the risks. So although there are a number of people saying, or, or a smallish number of people saying that they're comfortable eating out, there's also quite a, quite a significant chunk of people saying that they're not comfortable going out. So, you know, there's, there's quite split views on all of these topics, which are still, which is, which is quite interesting. And JP, just given what we've, what we've heard, does this tell us a bit more about the potential path that we might see for the recovery? Are, are we worried about markets and portfolios in the very short term? Worry might not be the right word, but as, as, as Rob just highlighted, there are still a lot of different paths that we could get into, and it partially depends on whether, yeah, whether a vaccine is being developed, how long this takes, and what are the next steps. Um, in our investment approach, we, we, we have yeah, we have become more nimble, and we closely monitor investor expectations uh, that is actually how, how optimistic or pessimistic uh, investors are as reflected in asset prices, um, as we often see that markets can overshoot. Um, at the moment, we see the outlook as quite balanced. Um, as we mentioned, there, there, there's, still, there's still a lot that can go right, but equally there is some downside risk that remains as well. With events on the horizon like the US elections, we have Brexit. Um, we do hold more corporate credit in our client portfolios, uh, both high quality and more risky bonds, as we see this as an area where given the current macro backdrop and the support by policymakers, where investors uh, are being rewarded. Of course, we will adjust portfolios if appropriate, if and when needed. And Rob, Will spoke in a recent podcast a, a couple of weeks ago about the potential for people to want to save more now because of this crisis um, and, and perhaps recognising that you know that that rainy day money might be might be an absolute requirement, but this obviously you know if, if everybody starts saving would would have a significant effect on the economy. What are your thoughts on this area? What are the important things to consider when when we think about the likely changes to to behaviour? So it's it's interesting. I think you know throughout the crisis since the start of lockdown, there's been a lot of speculation about you know how habits and behaviours would change, kind of you know coming out of lockdown and, and, and in the long term, I guess the first thing to point out is it's not, it's, it's never like any issue, like all of our, you know, investment issues, it's, it's never black and white, you know, there's a spectrum of, of uh, probable or possible outcomes and some of those are more likely than others. Now, I guess over the last few months, um, we've seen a lot of sort of survey evidence um, that consumers believe they'll keep their spend thrift habits once lockdowns are reduced. So 
a good kind of point with reference is that so there's a survey where almost 65% of Americans think their saving habits will be permanently changed post uh, pandemic and, and they'll save more as a result. Now, what's interesting is that although most consumers or a lot of consumers believe that they may save kind of uh, through this crisis and, and keep those habits post crisis, you know, especially at the start of the crisis, the consensus from uh, the behavioral science community who study you know, human behavior and decision making uh, suggests that things actually would be much more likely to go back to normal and people would potentially maintain their, their kind of old spending behavior. And in normal situations, we quite often see this intention behavior gap where people report that they really want to do something that's good for them, like save money potentially. But the reality is that there's many barriers, some of which sort of are psychological, some of which are external, which get in the way and, and stop them achieving that. You know, the difference with this situation really that we're looking at now is that it's really it's forced upon us. So usually when people are saying, oh, I want to save more in the future, you know, if they're going to do that, they've got to make a, a fairly strong decision and, and overcome some willpower in order to delay, you know, the present um, kind of gratification they get from spending that money now. Whereas, you know, in the current situation, people can't spend a lot of the money that maybe they were before or and, you know, they haven't had to exercise too much cognitive um, and willpower to, to kind of do that saving. Now, it's not just about how people feel about sort of the economy and their future financial situation, uh, which are kind of the usual drivers of consumer sort of confidence and spending. But it's also, you know, how do people feel about the risks of going out and spending their money? And the reality is the longer that the restrictions are in place and any lockdown measures are in place and being reimposed and the longer people sort of don't feel safe, the more likely we're going to become accustomed to the sort of behaviours and that we're in and the savings we're making. And the more likely that they may kind of maintain after and post lockdown. And so interestingly, if we look at some of the recent US data, you know, it shows that consumer spending has recovered from, from some of the April lows, but there is a definite divergence between low-income households and high-income households with high-income households not uh, spending quite as much as they were pre-lockdown, which you know, potentially shows that, uh, you know, an inequality, if you like, in, from, a, from a societal kind of point of view. But, you know, as with anything, it's hard to have a very, very strong confident view on what's going to happen into the future because we just don't know quite how this pandemic is going to play out. And I, I think we can all we can all relate to that that uh, intentions uh, um, and behaviour gap that you talked about there. I mean, we all we all know, what, or or most of us know, what's good for us, but we don't necessarily follow through on it, um, even if we might uh, complete a survey saying we have every intention of saving more or spending less. You know, it, it is human nature as as uh, you know as as you as you refer to there. So so this goes to show that you know whilst whilst we'd love to to have some certainty to be able to you know diagnose what the future holds there there really is you know uncertainty and i know we've talked about forecasting before but what are the sorts of things that as investors our listeners should be aware of or be wary of so i think it's it's you know when i talk about forecasting it's interesting people think oh i'm not i'm not a forecaster but the reality is when you make a decision you're usually you're basing it on you know an expectation of something happening in the future so it's just part of our everyday lives we we are sort of making lots of mini forecasts, if you like. But the interesting thing when you look at, at forecasting and, and you look at people who are good at forecasting and people who maybe aren't as good at forecasting, and, and you, lots of studies have been done in this, in this area, and what it shows is that you know, forecasting is a skill and of itself. So you don't necessarily have to be an expert in a field to be a good forecaster. But 
if you are an expert and you have the traits of being a good forecaster, then you're likely to make a lot better forecast than, than someone who potentially is an expert but doesn't necessarily have some of those traits. And you know, what I spend some of my time looking at is, you know, what are what are those traits? How do we make sure that, you know, um, we foster kind of some of those and try and overcome some of the barriers, some of the psychological barriers that, that we have in in processing information. So things like over overconfidence is a big one. Everyone tends to be a bit overconfident in their views. Um, you know, when you ask people how good you are at driving or, or um, if you ask people if they, if they think they're better than the average driver in, in the UK, you tend to get something like 90% of people saying they think they're better than average, which obviously <laughs> is, a, is an impossibility statistically. Um, but it just shows you know, everyone's very confident in their own in their own abilities and views. Um, and and it, if you don't have a sort of mechanism to try and counteract that a bit, it can get you into trouble. But also open-mindedness, so the ability to change kind of your course of your views and take in new information and use that to, to adjust kind of how you're thinking about things is, is very important. So I think although that might make it sound like, you know, you can't have any confidence in anything, if you just hold your hands up and say, well, I have no clue. When it comes to investing, you know, what it does mean is you shouldn't be placing too much emphasis on any sort of specific forecast. And I think for inflation is a, is a good example here. You know, arguably there are, there are sensible rationale for why, you, why it might stay low into the future, long into the future, and, and some people argue that, as well as good arguments for why it might increase long into the future. And indeed, you know, there are these very divergent views from, from commentators that we see. So, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of which, I mean, JP, you're talking about inflation, we had June data reported this week. So what, what are your thoughts at the moment? Do we have strong conviction um, in this area? What, what's informing your thoughts and the impact that, that it could have either way? Oh, well, that's, that's yeah, a good point that Rob just mentioned. There, this is one of the areas where there are so many moving parts that's very hard, very hard to come up with, with, the very, with a lot of confidence in your outlook into the future. Um, as most people will get in their textbooks, often we get presented with the stylized fact that if you get more money printing by central banks, that in the end it will result in inflation. And especially now at a time where we see that fiscal uh, policy is taking over more and more from monetary policy, it's definitely something where in the investor community you see more people look at what's the potential for inflation. Well, it's important here to remember that in, in, in the last decade, we have seen central banks uh, print a lot of digital money uh, as well, and we haven't seen really the boost in inflation. Um, but now that fiscal policy is taking the baton uh, over from monetary policy, it really actually depends on where it's spent on. So now the spending decisions are much more crucial to inform us whether there is any risk for inflation, yes or no. For example, if governments would spend it on an area where there is a lot of spare capacity and a lot of, for example, idle machines in a factory or a lot of unemployed in a particular sector of the workforce, then it's not necessarily a problem. If it would be spent where there are bottlenecks or there could be skill mismatches, it would be a different story. And and this this yeah in, in some way reminds me of a great book um, that I read recently from Stephanie Kelton, so the, the deficit myth. And she is an academic who was advisor to the Bernie Sanders campaign. And yeah, it's a must read on, on this topic. So it very much depends on the choices they would make to spend it on. It feels a little bit like the dogma is changing on, on, on deficit spending not being a concern for, for inflation. Um, but it's very important here to realize that each economy has its own speed limits. And essentially, we don't know exactly sure where, the, where that is. So inflation as itself as a topic is something we're closely monitoring 
is not something we put a high conviction on in our investment decisions or cases, but it is something we're closely monitoring. And we see definitely in the in, in investment landscape, a lot of attention being paid, perhaps more strategically, what would inflation do to your portfolio? And good to have got a book, uh, book recommendation in there. I'm sure everybody <laughs> will be um, quickly Googling that one and <laughs> putting it on their birthday list. Um, so thanks, thanks, JP. But, but so, you know, we're, we're hearing some cases of quite divided views out there on, on many topics. And it's interesting how we can, you know, take lots and lots of very similar information, but come to quite different conclusions from that. Um, just turning back to you, Rob, what, what are your thoughts in this area? I think how we form our opinions and our views and, and the way we go about sort of refining those over time is, is very important to be mindful of, especially when, you know, you're basing investment decisions on some of these beliefs. So if you hold, for instance, a strong political view, then it can, it can and will, um, as has been shown, definitely affect the way that you interpret data. So, and it will also potentially affect, you know, the way that you seek out information in order to then corroborate kind of what you think, and also the views that you surround yourself with. Um, so to bring this to life, you know, it's quite a stark example is when, so when US citizens were recently asked to rate their nation's economy, so 10% of Democrats rated it as very or fairly good, whereas uh, pretty much 70% of Republicans rated it uh, as, as very or fairly good. So you can see oh, how, okay. you know, essentially people, people <laughs> looking at the same sort of information on the economy yeah. and just a huge dichotomy in views. And, and that can really, a lot of that is really explained by, you know, their, their prior beliefs, the, their fact that their mm. political uh, allegiances, if you like. Um, and so, you know, stories is very important to this. So the sort of stories that we sort of tell ourselves and that we use to shape our opinions. Um, you know, we love a, a narrative and being able to weave information into narratives that kind of gives us the idea of, of, of relationships and causal relationships, which makes us feel like we have a bit more certainty about things that are going on. Um, and, you know, uh, mnemonics is a good example of what of, of, of this kind of bias, if you like, in, in our minds, why we use mnemonics a lot is because it's very easy for us to remember things in a bit of a story rather than, you know, single individual um, sort of data points. So, you know, if we have a strong belief about the world, then we're much more likely potentially to be biased in how we interpret this new information. Um, we also tend to seek out information which supports our views, sort of confirmation bias as it's known, um, and seek out similar uh, opinions. Now, a really interesting thing is that there have been studies showing that uh, the more we're exposed to sort of certain stories or similar stories, I should say, the same stories, the more likely we are to believe them as true. So uh, Daniel Kahneman, who's a, who's a Nobel laureate um, and a bit of the sort of godfather of behavioral science, said um, said a reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition because familiar familiarity is not easily distinguished from truth. Uh, so authoritarian institutions and, and marketeers have always known this as fact. Um, and it's, it is true. So, you know, the more we tell ourselves or are confronted by the same stories, the more likely we are to believe them. So things like social media in the current day and age can actually facilitate exaggerating some of these biases and more extreme uh, views because the people who, you know, you're more likely to, to see and who are kind of shout loudest tend to have the more extreme views. And therefore, you know, if we're being steered towards these people by potentially our prior beliefs, um, and, you know, they have these extreme louder views and they repeat them and we see them and they get more airtime, then it's likely that people are going to become more sympathetic to those sorts of messages. You're making, you're making me even more worried about that sort of 
that echo chamber effect. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, as, as you say, if it's if it's repeated often, then then it 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 feels truer. Um, Tony, Tony, so, Tony Blair knew what he was doing about when he said education, education, education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that nowadays would be about sort of three hundred times repeated as opposed to three. Um, so, lastly, JP, just coming back to you, um, how do we take some of this, uh, you know, on board when we're thinking about our and and your uh, your team's investment decision making for clients? How do we make sure that we can keep ourselves honest and not be too beholden to our to our prior beliefs we're all human right so so how do you go about this it's a very good point so when we invest for on behalf of clients in funds and accounts so if we do the strategic asset allocation so which assets to buy in 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 funds and accounts we depend on the modeling work that uses hundreds of thousands potential future outcomes so we not merely rely on a view or on a on, on a single past we try to make it robust for all possible scenarios. Uh, what we also do, and that's a tactical asset location, so here we make small changes to those weights in those portfolios and accounts, is we depend on a framework. So we use, in this case, core cards. You can think of it something similar to a checklist um, where we have to think and interpret a, a range of different outcomes. And hopefully that will address some of the pitfalls that Rob has just been mentioned of echo chamber or too strong belief or... Um, those kind of behavioral traits, uh, we hope hope to have been addressing that in, in the process for those investment decisions. Very good. So thank you so much, JP and, and Rob, for, for hosting this week's call. Thank you to everyone for listening and subscribing. And as always, we welcome feedback. So um, do please get in touch and we'll speak to you again soon. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.